Hi there, and welcome into BTN's Take 10 Podcast. This is Alex Rue of BTN.com, and if you're listening to this on its release date on Friday, then that's a glorious thing, because it's almost the weekend, and we have another couple of days full of football awaiting us, and life is good. But if you are listening to this early next week on, say, Monday, then things maybe aren't so good. Your, your team could have already lost, and you definitely have to go to work for another full week. So hopefully either way, this episode will uh, lift your spirits a little bit, a little pick-me-up. So for this episode, we had Heather Dinich call in from her home in Maryland. Heather covers the college football playoff for ESPN. And during our discussion, she got into some cool stories about how that playoff process works. Gave us a a behind-the-scenes look at that ever-secretive college football playoff committee. And we also got into her days as a student reporter at Indiana University um, on her path to ESPN, including how she landed an exclusive Bob Knight interview the day he was fired, which is pretty surreal to hear. And she also tells a story that is literally explosive, among other topics. So you'll have to listen on here and and find out what that's all about. And before we get to that, I just want to remind everyone that we are on iTunes, also known as Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Play and Podbean. So please subscribe, rate, and review, all that good stuff. And without further ado, we'll get into the Take 10 podcast discussion with Heather Dinich of ESPN. I am very pleased to be joined by an Indiana University grad. She's now at ESPN as a uh, ESPN studio analyst and ESPN.com senior writer and college football playoff reporter. It's Heather Dinich. Heather, thanks so much for joining me. Sure. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, first of all, I got to say, Heather, that's that's pretty impressive that your ESPN bio lists, uh, lists three titles. I think that's the longest introduction I've made on the show as far as <laughs> as far as roles go. So congrats. You're, you're setting the bar high. Oh, a college football reporter works just fine, too. We can go with that. <laughs> all right. <laughs> we'll shorten you. it down. We'll shorten it down. Um, so can you, can you kind of describe those roles to me, first off, how uh, you are a studio analyst, a senior writer, and then now a college football playoff reporter. How do those roles kind of intersect at ESPN? Sure. Um, well, it's it's very fun. It started, well, I guess almost four years ago now with um, the start of the college football playoff. I joined ESPN in November of 2007, and it was when ESPN had just started up its, quote, blog network and hired a reporter to cover every Power Five conference and um, a reporter for the group of five, and I was assigned to the ACC. And when Florida State went to the national championship, um, and it was in California at the Rose Bowl, I had a conversation with my editor, and I said, look, I love my job, I love covering the ACC, but I'm ready for another challenge. So we kind of thought about it, and when the college football playoff came to fruition, he said, why don't you, know, why don't you be the beat writer for the college football playoff? And I don't think anybody, including me or him or anyone at ESPN, knew exactly what that would mean because none of us knew what the college football playoff, how it would evolve, what it would be like, et cetera, and what this role would be. And so over the past three years, um, I've really enjoyed trying to figure that out. And it's um, it's been neat because it's, it's a unique position, and the studio analyst part comes in on Sundays for – the past, this will be the third season that we've had a show on ESPN on Sundays around 1 o'clock called Championship Drive, Who's In? And there's been um, a variety of 
analysts on there with me from Butch Davis to Mark May and Brett McMurphy was on there um, a couple times, Brad Edwards, Jonathan Vilma, and we've just had fun talking about those games that weekend, and I'm always the voice of the selection committee side, the playoff perspective. Um, and I've really enjoyed bringing the, report, the reporter aspect along with the former players and former head coaches, and I think it's a, a, unique, a unique dynamic there on set because it's two different perspectives. Yeah, are you the only dedicated college football playoff reporter, or are there others? You mean across the country? Well, as in, like, with that title, are there are there more uh, of you essentially? Uh, um, you know, I I don't I don't think people really cover the selection committee um, as much as I do in terms of. Um, like, for example, I was at Ohio State, Oklahoma, and I was sitting with Gene Smith in his um, athletic director suite before the game, and I do a lot of stories like that, and I try to break news on who the next election committee members are going to be and um, have a good relationship with Bill Hancock, the executive director of the playoff, and the commissioners, all 10 FBS commissioners, and Notre Dame athletic director Jack Swarbrick. So I kind of consider um, those guys the suits of the sport, what I like to call them. They're the ones who make the decisions in the college football playoff. And I, I, there are a lot of national writers out there like Dennis Dodd and Stuart Mandel and George Schroeder who do cover, obviously, those commissioners sure. and, and the playoff and athletic directors and things like that. But I'm not sh- sure necessarily how many people across the country have it as a clearly defined beat, and that's their role. Sure, and I think to the to the casual fan, the playoff committee is kind of seen as this mysterious entity. You know, like you never know what their tactics are. At least, at least, like I said, to an outsider. So, how did you forge those right. relationships? And and I guess what's the kind of info that you're able to to get out of them? And um, I guess what's that relationship like? Or does it vary from person to person? Uh, well, it's really hard. That's the toughest part about the whole job because the selection committee members, aside from the committee chair, Kirby Hocutt, the athletic director at Texas Tech, they don't talk. They don't do interviews. Um, once the rankings start, which this year is going to be on Halloween on October 31st, they are completely off limits. So I've tried in years past to go sit down with them like I did with Gene Smith before the rankings come out, and sometimes... Uh, that's okay, and sometimes they say, no, you know, we're going to pass on that. So uh, I was very fortunate this spring. I went out to Robert Morris University and sat with Chris Howard, who's the president there and one of the selection committee members here, selection committee members on the playoffs, and I got to know him. But none of the committee members are sitting there telling me, I think a conference championship game should matter. I'm quite frankly not allowed to ask them questions about their actual selection process in terms of what they think. They're not allowed to go into detail about their philosophies. Um, sometimes I, I can get that. Like when Condoleezza Rice was first announced on the selection committee years ago, when she was first announced, she's off of it now, she told me um, that conference championship games should matter. And when I talked to Tom Osborne, he was on the committee. He's no longer on the committee. He told me, how much he valued special teams and field position and things like that. So there are certain times and moments when you can glean some insight, 
on the record and to what they think, but it's not like they let me in the committee room when they're debating. But having gone through three mock selections, I have a very good understanding of the process and how it works and how the committee thinks. Sure. It's so interesting. So I'm just trying to imagine like any other type of sports coverage where at some at, like in the middle of the season, all access is just cut off. And I know like that would drive <laughs> other sports writers crazy, especially like when they're already griping about the limited access they're allowed. Right. Uh, so it's just funny. But you know, it, it's important though, and I get that, that they need that protection in that meeting room. Having gone through it, you have to be able to freely debate and talk honestly about the teams without having to worry about a reporter in there. I get that because you have to protect the sanctity and the integrity of the process, and the only way to do that is to be honest and candid about those discussions, and that's really hard to do if you have somebody in there who's recording your every word. It, yes. People wouldn't act like themselves, right? But I do feel like at the very end of the season, all of those committee members should reveal their top four, and they should talk about it and say why and give fans and coaches and everybody else in the media more insight into how they came to that decision. Yeah, agreed. And I'm curious, um, you mentioned the you went through some mock selections. What goes into that? What's that process like? Is it literally like a like a mock fantasy football draft where you're sitting in the room with people, or how does that go? It is. Yeah, it's, it's very fun, and it's very important. It's a great learning process, and the college football playoff brings members of the media to Grapevine, Texas, at the very hotel that the selection committee members meet in the very same room. They're treated exactly the same. They get the same breakfast, the same snacks, etc., and they meet in the meeting room, Selection Central, and you go over, they pick a random season, like 2011, right? We're not talking about this season. So um, they give you a team sheet that has all the stats and all the information and records, anything you could possibly want to know about all those teams from 2011, and you go through the whole process. You do your homework before you get there, you rank your 30 teams, you fly in, and you go through the process just like the selection committee members do. And it's very revealing because you see how different people can persuade you in their opinions. You go in there and you think, wow, you know what, Boise State really deserves this, one of these top four spots. They were undefeated. And then all of a sudden you sit there and you start looking at it. And then somebody says something and somebody else says something else. And all of a sudden you're like, no, man, Boise State didn't play anybody. <laughs> what are you talking about, you know? And you've got Ohio State back in there. So I think it um, – it's a very revealing process that it's it's certainly not as simple as people think. Yeah, it definitely sounds uh, pretty fascinating. And we'll get into your role at ESPN a little bit more uh, later on. But with uh, when I when I generally have media professionals on here, especially someone with the caliber of resume you have at, at a uh, place like ESPN, I always like to get into those people's backgrounds and, and what led you to your current role. So I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about yourself uh, a bit at length here. If you could just go back to the beginning, really, when you became interested in, uh, in doing what you do for a living now and um, just get into some of the early steps you took going all the way back to college and maybe even before that. Well, you're very kind and flattering, so thank you. Thank you for the <laughs> nice comments. I'll try not to bore people too much, though, with my background. I'll tell you this. I've been doing this since I was 16 years old. I've always wanted to be a sports writer. I grew up in Pottsville, Pennsylvania, and I was working for the Pottsville Republican, putting in high school football scores and cross-country agate and things like that. So this is not something that I decided I wanted to do yesterday. Um, 
And I was very fortunate that I that ESPN reached out to me when I was covering Maryland um, because that's when they started their blog network. But to, to backtrack, I graduated from Indiana in 2001. I went on to an internship at the Washington Post covering high school sports for two years. And then I covered Penn State because I really wanted to cover college football more than anything. And I went to work for the Center Daily Times. And it happened to be the worst season in Penn State history. Paterno was 3-9. and nine. Anthony Morelli was their quarterback. I will never forget this. I used to sit in the front row at Paterno's press conferences, and he'd be like, ah, what do you know? You know, you're 25 years old, never play football, blah, blah, blah. And so he and I would tangle every week. Because I'd say, why can't your quarterback throw the ball? Why isn't he prepared, you know? And so Joe and I would go at it. He was 3-9. and nine. He was miserable. And the next season, they weren't very good either. And so I, I got married, and I left, and I came back to the D.C. area. And, of course, the year after I leave, they go to the Orange Bowl, and it was just epic. It was like that three-overtime game. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, – then after that, I covered Maryland basketball and football for the Baltimore Sun for a couple of years. And um, during that time, it was when the newspaper industry first really started to take some hits, and the Baltimore Sun was having cuts. And ESPN reached out saying, hey, you know, we're, we're starting our blog network. Would you be interested in um, looking at one of those positions? And I was sitting at the student union at Maryland writing about, like, a third-string linebacker and a notebook, and I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, I would. And I'm, I'm forever grateful for that moment because right after that, I mean, I would have gotten laid off from the Baltimore Sun. It was pretty much inevitable, I think. So um, .com saved me from that, and, and I've been there ever since. Sure, and just going back to your time at Indiana, uh, doing a little research on you, at one point it said you went to Bob Knight's house and wrote a uh, wrote a story for the school paper while you were still in school. Is that is that true? I did, I did. Um, so my junior year was the year that Knight got fired, and it was honestly a defining moment in my entire career. And I credit Bob Knight for much of the direction that my sports writing career went because we were at his house. I, I will never forget it. It was the day that um, Kent Harvey, he, he grabbed him and he violated essentially the zero tolerance policy. And all of a sudden, all the national media descended on Assembly Hall. And I was working for the Indiana Daily Student at the time, and I was wandering around trying to find Bob Knight. And Mike Davis, one of his assistant coaches, um, found me and he was like what are you doing and I thought I was I thought he was going to scold me for trying to report and I said I'm, I'm trying to find um I was trying to find him and he said what you know why don't you ask coach Knight what happened and I my job hit the floor because when you go to IU all you want to do is cover IU basketball when you're writing for the paper course, and you yep. do that as a senior right you work your way up and so here I am being taken down into the bowels of Assembly Hall, not where his office is. I always thought his office was upstairs. He has this office upstairs. But we were going downstairs, and it looked like a janitor's closet. It was a gray door, nondescript, and he knocks on the door, and night comes out. And he was huge. And it was the first time I had ever really met him face-to-face. And... Um, they introduced me, and he said, don't be afraid yet, kid. Go get all your buddies from the Indiana <laughs> Daily Student. Bring them over here, and I'll tell you what happened. 
and of course there's only one person there, you know, so it's, and, and one of the editors from the Indiana Daily Student sitting in Knight's real office downstairs, and I remember he leaned back in his chair and put his hands behind his head and crossed his feet, and he said, you want to know what happened? And so, meanwhile, mind you, Sports Illustrated, CNN, everybody else is walking around upstairs, and there's me and, and another guy downstairs talking to Knight, and so I walked out of there, and I called the Washington Post, and I said, hey, I got this story, do you want it? And so um, I wrote it for the IDS and the Washington Post, and um, that helped lead to a two-year internship, and we wound up going to Knight's house twice, sitting on his back porch, eating Sloppy Joes. Isaiah Thomas, Digger Phelps, they were there. Um, and I, his wife brought the we, – we got to his house, and his wife was out there with the broom and, like, you know, shorts and a T-shirt. I thought she was a housekeeper. He never introduced her to us. And she's bringing us Sloppy Joes, and finally he's like, oh, that's my wife Karen. I was like, what? I thought this was the I thought it was the housekeeper. So um, for two days we we sat on his back porch and and I still have the tapes and um, every now and then listen to them. But it was it was fascinating. It's pretty incredible that you know so early on you were, as you put it, tangling with uh, Joe Paterno and then Bob Knight of all people. Mm-hmm. Like these are you know these are titans in coaching and and right. very famous and <laughs> that's insane to me that you were, you know covering them so so early on especially as a student getting that scoop yeah. for the, the post <laughs> I was I mean you know you can work so hard but sometimes sometimes it's just about being in the right place at the right time Absolutely and you mentioned you uh, you interned for some papers um I mean I, the post anyone would would take that uh you were in Kansas City as well right I was. I interned at the Kansas City Star, but that got cut short because my apartment exploded. Bet you didn't oh, know that. All right. No, did. no, I, d- I didn't know that. But we're gonna have to get into it. So you brought it up. I can't. I can't let that slide. You gotta tell me what happened with your apartment exploded um, in Kansas City. So yeah. So I was. I was out for a run. It was a hot day in the summer in Kansas City, and I was living with Jenny Carlson, who worked for now works for Oklahoma, and she has a great job, and she's my roommate, and she was laying on her couch, and. Um, I'm outside running around, and I see fire trucks and ambulance going. And this is true, a true story. I looked at them, and I thought, they can't be going to our apartment. They're not going to our apartment. For whatever reason, I was running, and I started following them. And they're going right in the direction of my apartment. And um, a firefighter stopped me. He goes, you can't go there. Where are you going? Stop. And I was like, wait, I live there. And there was nothing left. I mean, it was a gas explosion, and it had just, erupted to the ground. There was just bricks, smoke, and rubble. And Jenny had jumped out. I think we were on, like, the second story. She threw a, um, something through the window, and she jumped out. And um, so there I am for the summer. All you have is the stuff you pack. Think about it. You're a summer intern, right? I had, right. like, a couple of bucks, my boyfriend's Messiah baseball jersey, and Navy baseball hat. I remember this. And, you know, you're closed for the summer. And I'm, I'm standing there dripping in sweat from a run. And so um, the editors of the Star were like, do you want to stay or do you want to go home? I was like, look, I want to go home. I just want to go home. And they were so nice. They took me to Walmart. They got me some clothes. And I went to get on the plane to go home. And this was before September 11th. They said, where's your ID? And I said, I don't, I don't have it. I lost, my, I lost everything. 
And he looks at me, and he's like, well, I can't let you on a plane without your driver's license. And I started crying. Don't you see CNN this morning? Don't you see what happened in my apartment? He's like, get on the plane, lady. Just get on the plane. <laughs> and so that internship was cut short, but it was uh, it was a good experience nonetheless, and I still love those guys at the Kansas City Star. So you really do have a knack for being in the right place at the right time. You're in a nice <laughs> office, and you were on a run when – in all seriousness, when your apartment explodes and, and you're right. lucky to be out of the out of the apartment. My mom says I have nine lives. So I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. She's right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good thing. Um, so the question I was asking before uh, before we got sidetracked with that uh, that harrowing tale there um, <clears throat> was since you interned for for so many different papers and kind of came up through the newspaper industry and and you mentioned it was at a time where it was starting to starting to die off a little bit. Do you think that that's still a viable path for younger journalists to, to get into, to, to get to the spot that you are today? Is is there a correct way to do it? Like, is the newspaper industry even, as I mentioned, viable still? Or, or do you recommend to younger journalists that they uh, explore different avenues? I think that the newspaper industry still is viable. And because I say that because I believe that there's no better time for great journalism than right now, and I'm, I'm talking sports and beyond. There are so many things going on in our country where people want to read good journalism, and in spite of all the attention that video and, and clicking and all of that is getting, there are still people out there who want good information, good stories, and will sit down and take the time to read it. So I believe that um, the newspaper industry will survive and will thrive as long as the leaders of those newspapers are smart and effective about the way they present that information and um, do give it cross-platform as well. That being said, young people going into the industry have to be more versatile than ever. They have to be able to do radio. They have to do podcasts. They have to be able to do videos. Um, all of those things, social media, the more that they can do the better and um, more marketable they will be in the industry. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think there's going to always be a place for, for news. And I just think like anything else, like you said, the industry has to adapt. And, you know, the big mistake that everyone talks about is, is giving their content away for free, essentially, mm-hmm. online when the Internet, you know, really came to, came to be what it is today. And um, I, I think also the idea that, you know, People shouldn't have to, to pay for content, and, and, and writers, you know, shouldn't be paid. Um, you know, like, like stu- we, we came up, we didn't get paid probably. I'm sure you didn't get paid at the Indiana Daily Student, at least not very much. And I think that kind of whole mindset has to change as well, and hopefully there's the, uh, the demand out there for it. Right, yeah. No, I got, I got paid $6 a story at the Indiana Daily Student. So I um, also worked in the IU cafeteria, and uh, I, was, I was a lunch lady. <laughs> See six dollars six dollars a story. That's probably uh, more than I got paid at the Daily Illini, and that was ten years later. So I think we're going we're still going backwards. But uh, there you go. <laughs> it's okay. It's all good. Um, mm-hmm. So moving on a little bit, um, kind of in the same vein as, as what you mentioned with adapting and changing your role. Um, when was the first time you did work on camera? Was that it? Was that at ESPN or when did you kind of start converting your role as a writer to a uh, on-camera role at uh, at ESPN. 
Yeah, it was definitely, um, I had done some things here and there very randomly, um, but it wasn't until I started covering the college football playoff that it actually became a regular part of my job. Um, it started with uh, sports center appearance. I was so nervous. I was so nervous. I could barely speak. And, of course, I was on with Linda Cohn, who I had grown up watching, and I'm out there on set with her, and she asked me a question, and my mic didn't work. <laughs> so um, that was my debut on SportsCenter at ESPN. I'll never forget it, but I've gotten more comfortable. I've come to learn why there's a broadcast journalism major. It's not easy. Some people, it comes very natural, very natural to you. Um, but I think I've also grown more comfortable with it because I've grown more comfortable with my job. Um, I started, you know, watching college football with a, nat a national perspective the same time I was trying to go on TV and talk about it. And those two things combined, I felt like shook my confidence a little bit because I, I wasn't an expert yet at what I was covering and I was trying to be an expert on TV and that's hard to do and now now I get it now I can talk about USC and I can talk about Penn State and the playoff and do it with coherent sentences usually not all the time on TV <laughs> as long as most of the time I think I think you can uh, you can skate by as long as you 85 85% of the time know what you're talking about yeah I'll take it I'll take it <laughs> Gotcha. And uh, sticking with Maryland, were you covering them during the 2002 uh, national championship? Uh, no. No. I, um, in 2002, I was an intern at the Washington Post. Okay, so you just missed it then. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I also, uh, I also missed Indiana's run to the Final Four right after I left. So maybe you're not always at the right place at the right time. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's right. All right, so uh, I'm going to stick on the Terps a little bit here before we move on. Um, when you covered them for the Baltimore Sun, what was the uh, – I mean, the basketball program has always been really solid there. What was the football program like? Because now we're kind of seeing Maryland football maybe start to have a little bit of a, uh awakening here. What was the football like when, when you covered them? And then uh, if you could expand on that. Um, just analyze what you've seen out of Maryland so far, if you've been able to, to pay attention to what DJ Durkin's been doing um, with that program. Sure. Um, well, it was it was average, and it was an interesting time um, because Debbie I was the athletic director there, Gary Williams was the basketball coach, and the two of them were powerful, polarizing figures. They just, there was, it was no secret that they, they didn't get along very well. Um, but they're very smart. They were very smart in their own way. And then there was Ralph Regan, and he he was the coach when I was there, and he was great. I mean, we moments just like any coach, but it was an average program at the time. I, I remember when they were when I was covering them, they went to the Champ Sports Bowl. Um, Jordan Steffi was their quarterback, and James Franklin was a coach in waiting. So it was, um, you know, it was it was a transition period, and I was walking around. They were playing Florida State when they joined the Big Ten. I'll never, I'll never forget that because Michael Kelly, who was um, an associate athletic director for the ACC at the time, was at that game as well. And John Swaffer, the ACC commissioner, had no idea. He had no idea that this was happening. And um, it was, I'll never forget that game because it, it came completely out of left field. 
But to answer your question about Maryland now, I watched that game at Texas, and while I have to give a lot of credit to Maryland, the bigger question I had was their backup quarterbacks, and how is Texas not taking advantage of this? And to me, it, the story was more about the meltdown of Texas than it was, okay, Maryland's going to surprise people in the Big Ten. In the Big Ten, so I'm like, come on. I mean, they're they're doing much better, and I think that there's certainly reasons for optim- optimism. Durkin's a great coach, and um, I, I think he's doing a really great job there, but they still have a long way to go before they can match the rest of that division. Oh, yeah, they're... They're going to have a challenging uh, time, you know, getting to the top of that division. I mean, anyone would with the teams right. that are there. Um, but I, I know from Maryland fans, it's definitely nice to see, um, you know, the foundation being laid for for some likely future success. It just looks like with the way that he's recruiting and uh, the way right. they've been playing in year two. But I agree. Like, what's going on with Texas? Because uh, <laughs> it seems like it's been, you know, seven or eight years now since they've been really relevant. I, I feel like Colt McCoy is the last time that they've <laughs> – been on the national radar yeah it's been a while um you know tom tom herman he talked about sprinkling pixie dust or fairy dust or whatever the heck it was um but they've they've got to look different sooner than later because he's coaching at a fan base that doesn't have patience um and it's run out of patience i i don't know why anybody would want to coach at texas because it has to be just because of the expectations there but when you look at Maryland, going back to DJ Durkin, the pro on a con here is sometimes is the apathy towards that program because you've got – I live in Maryland. So you've got the Redskins and you've got the Ravens, and then you have Maryland. And it's like you can get there on game day without much traffic. Everything's okay. And basketball goes through this as well. I mean, there are so many pro sports around here and other things that it's not the it's not the first stop on the radar. Um, so in order for there are Maryland fans here, obviously, but in order for Maryland to take a priority in the state, it has to be the best team in the state, and it, it hasn't even been that recently. Navy has. Yeah, and like you mentioned, DC is a, a pro sports town, and and that whole you know DMV area in general is just so pro sports oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, Maryland basketball. As, as we talked about, has had that success. And when we were out there for the Big Ten tournament last March, um, you know, it was all kind of set up for Maryland. They had the Friday night game, and they packed that place. They were at, they packed the uh, Verizon Center. They were rowdy, and then it just felt like this coming out party. And then Northwestern beats Maryland on their home floor, and it was just so deflating, mm-hmm. it felt like. Because that was kind of – it seemed like that was kind of a a, uh, a big moment, you know, for, for Maryland and D.C., and, and it, they just kind of fell flat. Right. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, brutal. Um, so moving on, uh, I wanted to touch on your relationships at ESPN with, with some of your colleagues because you know there's there's so many forward facing personalities there that we that we all know, and then there's always people that we don't know working behind the scenes as well that are so important to the whole operation. And I was just curious if you had any uh, any memorable stories or funny stories about colleagues there that that you think uh, listeners would enjoy would enjoy hearing. Um, well, all of the writers at ESPN, even though we're not in the office together, we're all in our own states. We're all really good friends. We're, it's like my second family. It really is. Um, but Chris Lowe uh, is, one, is, one of my, is one of my best buddies, and 
I remember covering the North Carolina LSU Chick-fil-A kickoff classic with him and thinking, you know, CeeLo, this is, you know, we're in SEC country here. He's going to get us out. We're out of the press box. It's like 2 a.m. And I'm like, all right, buddy, you're driving. You get us back. I mean, we were driving around. I'm like, Chris, we're in Atlanta. Can, like, <laughs> you, you're supposed to know this. How many SEC championship games have you covered? And I remember we're just sitting there on, like, on the side of the road. He got lost. And it was we're, the headlights were shining on, a, on a, a metal fence. It was dark. I'm like, where are we? Can we just go home? And, you know, he drives five miles an hour. And so there's, that's, like, that's an evening with Chris Lowe. And then I remember Adam Rittenberg once went to Auburn and – we did this thing where all the reporters went to a different conference because they wanted to experience different football cultures in different places of the country. So he, Adam, you know, Big Ten guy, goes to Auburn, and, I mean, he almost got attacked by War Eagle. He, you know, they, <laughs> they, they release it before the stadium, and it was captured on video. And I'll never forget the look on his face. I mean, he was, like, he was petrified <laughs> that he was going to get attacked by this bird. And that was, like, one of, my, one of my all-time favorite moments. I wish you could actually see his face on the podcast, but that was, that was priceless. And he, he still hasn't lived down so i don't yeah, know a, those were a couple things it's a different ball game down there in uh, sec country and, and that atlanta story that's uh that's when you call the uber yeah right i don't <laughs> even know if they had uber then <laughs> it probably didn't it seems like it's been around forever but i look back and just a couple years ago in college it it wasn't even around um, yeah so getting back to before we wrap up your uh college football playoff coverage um i'm just curious like what's the outline of how to cover a format like this because the college football playoff it's still relatively new um like you mentioned like the second half of the season is when the rankings start to come out with the committee so how does your role change from what you're doing right now like you said you were at the Oklahoma Ohio State game what are you what are you covering now that will be different once those rankings come out uh in the second half of the season yes my job um it goes from 100 miles an hour to 150 miles an hour once the rankings come out because the Sunday show starts usually the first weekend in October. And so I have three kids. I tuck them into bed on Friday night, and um, around 8.30, 9 o'clock, my cab comes. I, I fly to ESPN. I usually get to my hotel between midnight and 1 a.m. I'm in the makeup chair around 7, 7.30 for a Saturday morning sports center hit, and I watch games at ESPN until... 2 a.m. and I write a story for Sunday after that, and then we do the Sunday we do Sports Center on Sunday mornings, and the Sunday show, and then around three or four in the evening, um, I fly back home here to Maryland, and I do that every weekend in October and November, with the exception of when I fly to Dallas on Halloween for the first ranking, and then the very last week of the season, I go to ESPN for a couple of days, and then fly from ESPN to Dallas for the last ranking, and then from Dallas to home. So it is It is just full go from October 1 until December 3rd this year when the, the season actually ends. Yeah, how do you balance, you know, having a family at home and small kids from the sound of it? How do you balance that, that uh, work-life relationship? Uh, coffee, wine, and running. <laughs> <laughs> the big three. Uh, <laughs> and and I have a, a wonderful, wonderful husband who carries all the weight during college football season. Um, it's hard. We I, I can't certainly cannot do it by myself. 
Um, but he's great. He helps a lot. I have three little boys. They're, they're seven, five, and three years old. And it's a lot, but we, uh, we just take it day by day and weekend by weekend, and somehow we keep getting through it. So what do you do in the offseason then when college football's not going on? Um, you know, the college football playoff spring meetings are still going on. I go out and visit some schools, um, spring ball. But, you know, the, you take your foot off the gas for sure um, and concentrate more on good feature stories, and it's not as much of a, a rush. It's a lot of phone calls and features and trips here and there and uh, turning the page in and starting to talk about um, the following season. And, of course, there's the national championship, so it, it doesn't really – stop until after that yeah of course it's kind of I mean it's kind of similar to to here I guess when uh in the summer there's no college sports going on so we're you know just everything kind of stops and I mean there's still stuff going on but it slows down and then now we're back to like you said 150 miles an hour um yeah quick question that that I have to ask um that I'm not even sure if you're aware of it or not but did you know there's a a parody twitter account floating around out there of you (laughs) no I had no idea (laughs) <laughs> and like, you know, some of those are, they, they can be kind of mean, but I think I was scrolling through it and I think it, it all seemed pretty, uh, pretty harmless, but that, that means you officially made it, right? If you have a, a parody Twitter account? <laughs> no, unless it's as good as f- fake Bo Pelini, <laughs> then get back to me. That's the, like the, that's when you made it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, a fake Bo, I don't think anyone's going to top Bo Pelini. That one's, uh. That one reigns supreme, I think. So it does, yeah. So yeah. faux, Heather, Heather Dennis. <laughs> just doesn't put have some work same, in. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't have the same ring to it. <laughs> All right, Heather. A um, couple more, couple more questions, kind of on the lighter side of things. Um, what is your favorite? I don't know how often, being an ACC reporter, you've got to go to schools in the Big Ten, but but do you have a favorite school in the uh, the Big Ten that you've? that you visited besides uh, Indiana or Maryland? I, the Big Ten is the only conference, well, maybe the ACC, that I that I have been to every school. I've been to every school in the ACC, but I've been to every school in the Big Ten. My very first assignment for ESPN.com was Lloyd Carr's last home game. And I, I think that experience... Hasn't hasn't been topped in the Big Ten for me. That was um, that was an amazing day and place to see a game. What about uh, the best tailgating scene? Is there a is there a Big Ten one that stands out? The best tailgating scene. Hmm. Well, I mean, it's fresh in my mind. But Ohio State was awesome. But I love Wisconsin. Wisconsin's a different. It's a different animal because of the city that it's in, and um, it's a capital, and it's just there's it's different, but. Ohio State was was really good, but I have I have told people before that if I went to school again, I would try Wisconsin. Yeah, I I love uh, I love Madison. It seems like every media personality I talk to, and I ask a similar question to to that, is um, the answer always seems to be Wisconsin. Uh, Brady Quinn, yeah. and Jenny Taft said the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's it's you know it's it's such a like you said unique place with the lakes there and the capital, and it's like the it's like the college town that if you could like create from scratch, it's, it's kind of what, what Wisconsin yeah. is. That's so, nice. um, how about uh, how about the entire country? Have you been to uh, any crazy tailgating scenes? And I know the SEC does it big, and, and other schools around the country. But give me a tailgating scene outside of the Big Ten that that uh, is can't miss. That's can't miss. Um, 
Clemson. Clemson is really good. I love that university and that campus. It's very, um, I, I want to say family friendly, but it, I, and when I say that, I mean all the Clemson fans are like a family. It's it's very welcoming. Um, it's there's just people everywhere. It's just it's good college football tailgating environment. That's good. Florida State's crazy. Florida State fans hate me, and I I'll never forget the last Florida State fan Florida State tailgate. I had to drive through to park at the stadium, and you drive right through the fans, and they're just ripping on me, yelling at me, just like screaming stuff. I'm trying to park my car. Um, yeah, that was that was one I won't forget. How do you deal with that? In all seriousness, how do you deal with you know the ire of fan bases? Because it's a, it's a serious it's a serious thing for a lot of people, and you write one thing and and you know it gets posted on a message board or it, get, it makes the airwaves, and all of a sudden you're public enemy number one. How do you deal with that? Um, well, I don't I don't obsess with Twitter. I'm I'm on it because I sort of have to be because you don't want to miss news and just part of thing. And it's fun to engage with fans to a point. Um, but you, you just have to have a, a good perspective about it and not, not let it get to you. I mean, I don't know how else to say it because if you do, you just can't last in this business. You can't last. So it's, you have to take everything with a grain of salt and realize that there are more people out there who are rational college football fans than the opposite. You just don't hear from them all the time. Yeah, um, you'd like to think that, right? That they're that the college football fans are, are more rational than not. I'll take your word for it that they are. You've been you've been around a long time. Um, all right. So um, before we wrap up here, I, I I have to ask, especially since it's just happened and you were there at the Oklahoma Ohio State game, were you on the field when Baker Mayfield did the lap and, and planted the flag at, on the block O at midfield? I was. Um... I wasn't quite fast enough on the trigger to get the the best video of it, but I did capture some video of it, so I saw it. So did you did you know that was what he was going to do? Because I was kind of looking out of the corner of my eye. I'd stopped, obviously, the game was over, so I stopped paying attention to the TV, but I saw him starting to grab the flag, and I was like, I think I know what he's getting ready to do here. Did you, did you know he was headed for the middle of the field? Um, Eventually, yeah. But I, I just thought people were making too big of a deal out of it. I just... And, you know, I'm usually super conservative with stuff like that because, like I said, I'm a mom. I have three boys, and I think if my kids did that, would I be upset? And I I don't think I'd be upset with that. I, I usually don't like the showboating, but having having been there and standing on the field at that time, that was a huge win. They crushed Ohio State. And I get it. It's emotions, and, and he was going nuts. I don't think he had to apologize for it. Um and I loved one Ohio State fan's response to it on my Twitter account. He said, look, if you, I'm an Ohio State fan. If you're going to come in there and beat us like they did, go ahead and plant two flags. <laughs> like, That's All right, I saw that. There you go. Yeah, I, I agree. That, like, the apology was unnecessary. And uh, the best comment I've heard about it was we were, we were talking to Ralph Russo for our uh, podcast actually yesterday, and he said that Turf did, did a better job of stopping Baker Mayfield in Oklahoma than the Ohio State <laughs> defense did. I love Ralph. That's great. He's a great guy. Yeah, you got, you got a chuckle out of that. Um, oh, all right, so we're almost done here, Heather. Before we wrap up, I uh, just want to get your thoughts on uh, the college football playoff in general, kind of kind of some broader thoughts. And um, Joel Klatt, I, I'm pulling this question out of something Joel Klatt told me about a month ago. Uh, he remarked on how college football and, in his opinion, the, the, just the discussions and everything surrounding college football – 
and the eventual outcomes at the end of the season is, is it's really the most subjective sport in America um, that we follow and just how you know the subjectivity of it determines rankings and and we got into how the committee determines things you know not by computers but by sitting around in a room and, and hashing it out so do you agree that that college football is a really subjective sport at its core absolutely and there's no way to predict it i i might say the only other one is figure skating think about it judges i yeah. covered I covered the World Figure Skating Championships when I was intern at the Washington Post, and I was like, this sport, <laughs> this sport is crazy. I don't understand it. I don't understand how they judge it. I don't understand what they're saying. <laughs> I didn't get any of it. But it's all judges, right? It's all, that's the only other thing that I could possibly compare it to is that. And it's because of the judging aspect of it. But when you have 13 people in a room there is simply no way to predict it. And what we've seen over the past three years is that they're going to do what they want to do at the end of the day. It doesn't, I mean, there is no formula. We can talk about conference championships and head-to-head and common opponents and strength of schedule, but all of those things matter differently to different people. And even if you figure out the 13 committee members, they're constantly changing every three years. And so there are three new committee members this year. And maybe Frank Beamer has a different take on conference championship games than Tyrone Willingham. I don't know. So, yeah, to answer your question, it's absolutely subjective. Yeah, and I love hearing stories about uh, obscure sports coverage, like, like figure skating <laughs> or something like that. So well, maybe that's a story for another day. But, um, there you go. Final question, final question, Heather. Uh, it's kind of the question that, that floats around every year, especially when those rankings heat up in November. Um, does the college football playoff format, in your opinion, need some tweaking? Like, does it need to go to six teams? Is eight the ideal layout? Or do you think it's just fine the way it is? On a personal level, I think it's fine the way it is. I love it because it keeps it elite and it keeps out automatic qualifiers, which was the intention. Because there will be years when you have a conference champion that has two or three losses. On a professional level, I think it's inevitable that it expands because that's what sports do and that's what you follow the money, right? And if there's more money to be made, it will be made at some point. But I do not think that those conversations become serious by any means um, for another couple of years because it's a 12-year contract. This is the fourth year. And the suits of the sport, as I referenced earlier, um, are not talking about it right now. They're not. Maybe they will at some point, um, but I don't think it's anytime soon. Yeah, I think the magic number for me just personally is, is six because that way you can get the, the Power Five champions and then you can get kind of one wild card team, you know, Boise State, Western Michigan, someone like that to – to throw a wrench and everything, but um, six would be cool. I think you just have two buys and then uh, quarterfinals, semis, and then the playoff, but that's just my opinion. Well, you're not alone. There's a lot of coaches that I've talked to out there who um, feel exactly the same way, so, it's, uh, so we'll see. Yeah, we'll just have to see, and we'll see what unfolds here in the uh, 2017 season. We'll be following your work over at ESPN. I know a lot of Big Ten fans will be watching intently on the on the rankings especially with the uh the four top 10 teams that they 
they have right now. So Heather, thanks so much for taking the time this morning. Really appreciate it. I appreciate you coming down from your uh, 150 mile an hour <laughs> schedule and, uh, and, and talking to me. So thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks again to Heather for joining me. And before we go, I've got to give a special shout-out to my guy here at BTN, Jordan Loparena. He's friends with Heather from his time at ESPN and helped pull this interview together, so I definitely appreciate that. And obviously I knew what he was doing, suggesting Heather as a guest in this podcast because she was a great interview and uh, had a lot of good insight and is definitely someone worth following throughout college football season, especially as the college football playoff rankings get ever closer. So... Thanks, as always, to Wes White for producing, and just a final reminder to everyone out there to rate and review the podcast on your listening app, and subscribe if you haven't already so you don't miss future episodes. So until then, we will talk to you soon on the Take 10 Podcast.